You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Please open to Mark 13, that passage that Karen read. Um, this is, a, uh, this is a, a tough sermon, um, so bear with me. Next week's sermon will be a tough sermon. Mark 13 is admittedly a very difficult passage of Scripture. Um, it, it parallels a couple other places in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, which could provide you further study. Um, in addition to that, Baker's been on vacation this week, so I told him y'all didn't need a, a sermon presentation, and y'all would be just fine. So for y'all that like to just look at the screen and follow along, I'm going to need you to get a pen out or your phone out to take some good notes because I'm going to reference some scriptures that I think it would actually be helpful for you to kind of meditate on and think about through the week. My daughter already yelled at me because she's running the screen. She said, I go too fast. And so, um, so if you miss anything, um, just get with me after service and I'll, I'll sh- share my notes with you and be sure to fill you in. Now, as we look at this uh, passage of scripture, um, I was trying to, you know, I was just trying to prepare in my mind to preach and we're sitting there or uh, standing there singing and you know, I'm getting ready to open the Word of God, and it's a, a, a great task that I'm, that I'm burdened with every week, and it's a great honor, and I'm thinking about my sermon, and then I'm also thinking about Star Wars, um, because I started watching Star Wars this week. I've got four kids in my house who are quarantined, so what else are we going to do? And so poor Judah was isolated in my bedroom all week, and so I was like, we're going to watch Star Wars. So we started watching Star Wars, and I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I've learned a thing or two about the wars in the stars. And, um, and, and the first three movies are episodes four, five, and six. Did you guys know this? And the second three movies are episodes one, two, and three. So they're what, what they call in Hollywood prequels. I know I'm illuminating many of you to this for the first time. Um, but so by watching the original movies first, that's what I did. I watched the ones from 77, 80, and 83. Um, I kind of know... Uh, the end result of episodes one, two, and three. Um, I know what's going to happen to Anakin Skywalker in the first three episodes. I know the end result. But so, so before I started watching those movies that were made when I was in high school, I was like, why, why do I need to watch these? Like, I know the end result. I know what's going to happen. And what hooked me in was I didn't know how it was going to happen. I didn't know the intricacies of, of how Anakin Skywalker was going to go on his journey and how he would be discovered. And so by walking through that, the filmmakers took me on a journey of how it was going to happen. And it's the same kind of thing with end times. We get fascinated with the, the theology of end times, uh, which is called eschatology, which just means the study of end times. And eschatology fascinates us and draws us in. Uh, what we do know is Jesus is coming back. Amen? Amen. Like we can agree on that. Um, we know we know what happens with Darth Vader, and we know Jesus is coming back. Um, and then, like, okay, the, the gaps and the details in between, all right, stay tuned for details, right? And, and so this is kind of where we find ourselves is we understand Jesus is coming back, but there's a lot of disparity and disagreement, even amongst Christians, on how that's going to happen. Um, so I want you on your phones to find the New Heights app, and I want to encourage you, even during the sermon, to submit questions on the app. You click Connect at the bottom and then click Ask. Um, and you can ask a question. And Pastor Jeremy and I are going to record a podcast tomorrow dealing with your questions. One of the most common questions we've already been uh, getting, um, so if this is your question, you don't have to submit this one. We got it multiple times, is the question of the rapture. Is there going to be a rapture? Is that a thing? Does that happen? Um, And we'll look at that a little bit this week, but more next week, and even more so on the podcast. But I think that the rapture is the same thing as the second coming. The word rapture is not in the Bible. 
Um, but we, we have these studies that kind of lead us into this almost obsession over eschatology. Um, what's going to happen with the rapture? When is it going to happen? Who is left behind, if anyone? Uh, what's happening with blood moons and the stars? And what's happening in the Middle East? And is the vaccine the mark of the beast? And all those questions and more kind of flood into us. And, and if we're not careful, it can just cause anxiety and panic in us because we don't know the answers. Um, we want to answer as many of those as possible. I think the Bible has the answers for those. I just simply don't have time to deal with them all Sunday morning, nor do you want me to deal with them all today, okay? Um, but I want you to see in Mark 13, the disciples were no different than we are. They knew the end was coming, but they didn't have the details. They wanted episodes one, two, and three. They wanted to know uh, how is this going to play out, Jesus, and can you kind of give us the details before it actually comes? And so what I want you to know as we begin to study this uh, first of all, the beginning of this sermon is going to feel more academic than a typical sermon at New Heights. And so I apologize for that. Well, no, I don't either. It's the Word of God. It's good for you, okay? So it, it's, going to be, it's going to be helpful, um, even though it might be a little bit uh, weightier at the beginning. But I think there's some deep applications I want to get to at the end of the sermon as well. And as we look at eschatology, again, the study of end times, we cannot come to eschatological conclusions that Jesus never came to with his disciples. One of the most common mistakes I see made by Christians is we'll start with the book of Revelation, which is apocalyptic literature that is symbolic in nature. And we'll take this mysterious, symbolic book at the end of the Bible, and we'll, and we'll interpret all the rest of the Bible through this mysterious book. Uh, rather, what you should do, Christian, is take the, the clearer narrative literature and doctrinal literature that we have in the Gospels and the Epistles, and then use that as the lens in which you look at the book of Revelation. It's massively help, more helpful in that way. And so we cannot arrive at a position that Jesus and his disciples never arrived at. Okay, That's the first thing I need you to see. second thing I need you to see is that the disciples here ask a couple of questions. They don't just ask one singular question. Um, if you read the accounts in all three of the synoptic gospels, they ask multiple questions. The, the disciples are like my wife. Um, Amanda will frequently, um, she just kind of, she thinks out loud, that's how she processes things. So frequently she'll ask me two questions at once. They're usually yes or no questions. It'll be like, hey, does this dress look good on me? Are you ashamed to be seen with me? And I'm like, Yes, no. Question one, yes. Question two, no. I got to be careful in what she applies my answers to. And it's, it's confusing to her when I'm trying to answer two questions at once. Um, in the same way, it's confusing in, in the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is trying to answer multiple questions that the apostles ask. Okay? And so the key to understanding this entire chapter is to remember at the beginning, the disciples ask more than one question. Don't miss this. So let's look at the beginning to kind of set up all of it. Uh, verse 1, they're coming out of the temple. This gives us the setting, the context. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. They're admiring the architecture of the temple. Um, so, so that's the, the immediate setting of the conversation is they're admiring the great building of Jerusalem, the temple. Verse 2, Jesus says to him, and they give this prophecy, Do you see these great buildings, referring to the temple, there will, not be, uh, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. 
Now, this was fulfilled quite literally in A.D. 70 when Rome conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the entire city. Um, In the city of Jerusalem, in the building of the temple, it was so ornate, there was actually gold laid in between the blocks. So if you look to your right or your left and you look at the blocks in our church building, just in between, imagine, in between every block with the mortar, there was just gold lining each one of those layers. And so when the Romans came in to conquer Jerusalem, they literally took every stone apart. There was not one stone, just as Jesus predicted, that was left on top of another because they plundered all of that gold. This was fulfilled quite literally. Now, notice what Jesus brings up to the disciples as they're leaving the temple. And they say, look at this great temple. He doesn't say, let me tell you about how I'm going to come back. He doesn't say, let me tell you about how the end of the world is going to happen. Rather, he says, this temple is going to be destroyed. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Given the fact that he had been teaching that the church that he was building was the temple of God. That, that we see in the New Testament that we are called living stones of God. That God is not dwelling in a temple made with hands, but rather he is dwelling in his church. Jesus is, is the precursor of that. And he's building the foundation for his church so that we can understand that we are the temple of God. Not the building or not any building. He was teaching that the temple itself would be destroyed. He actually told many people this during his ministry, that the temple would be destroyed. And the temple, um, he actually condemned the practices at the temple because it was no longer a place where they welcomed the nations in. They had become racist in their thinking. They had become um, egotistical and were closed off to other nationalities and races. Um, and, And they had elevated temple worship to a place it was never intended to be. And so a lot of Jesus' teaching was, this is temporal. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to go away. So it makes sense for Jesus to bring this up as they leave the temple. Now here comes the confusion. There was a common Jewish misconception that when or if the temple was destroyed, that had to be the end of the world. You have people in your life that just like overreact to stuff, and you got to grab them on the shoulders every now and then and just give them, a, give them a good shake and be like, it's not the end of the world. So if you would take a first century Jew and tell them the temple is being destroyed right now, and you would shake them and say, it's not the end of the world, they would look back into your face and they would say, yes, it is. They genuinely believed that if the temple was destroyed, that was the apocalypse. That was the end of all things because they believed it was God's sanctuary. They believed it was literally where God dwelt. And if that was destroyed, it had to be the end. And so then we get to this Mount of Olives in verse 3. He sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. It's just a mountain on the opposite side of where the temple sat. And four of his disciples asked him privately. So it tells us Peter, James, John, and Andrew ask him this privately. In verse 4 it says, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now notice, um, they, it doesn't give us real clarity in Mark's gospel, so it's helpful sometimes to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So we can jump over to Matthew 24.3. This won't be on the screen, but I want to read it to you. If you want to jot down this reference to look at it yourself later, you can. But in Matthew 24, you have the same question being asked, and Matthew gives us a little more detail of what they ask. It says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign, now listen to this clause, of your coming and the end of the age? So built into the way they ask it in Matthew's account shows their implicit um, assumption that is incorrect. Their assumption is that when the temple is destroyed, that's also the end of the age or the end of the world or the apocalypse. Um, So the two questions they're asking is, Jesus, you said the temple's going to be destroyed. When is that happening? And when will the world end? 
And so what follows is this lengthy discourse that we're going to unpack over the next two Sundays and in a podcast that will be released at the end of this week. What follows is known as the Olivet Discourse, this kind of lengthy teaching from Jesus that answers both of those questions. Matthew 24, 4, the very next verse says, Jesus answered them. Jesus is faithful to answer both questions. And so the confusion comes and kind of jumbled in Jesus' response is he answers about the temple, which I believe is fulfilled in AD 70 in the first century. But then he also gives foreshadowings and details about his second coming and tribulation that will ultimately come, which I believe is still in the future. Okay, For the disciples, all of this was in the future. And so let me jump to verse 14. Now in verse 14, I think this is a focus in Mark 13 where you can see that the primary implication of the Olivet Discourse is the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember what Jesus started the thing with. This whole, this whole place is going to be destroyed. I think that's the primary implication of the entire sermon. What Jesus is teaching about is that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. He says this about that event. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. That gives us a hint that this is a mysterious thing. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, lots of people will look at the abomination of desolation. There's a lot of mystery surrounding what that actually was. I don't think anybody who's ever lived can with ultimate certainty say they know exactly what the abomination of desolation is. I had a guy tell me one time it was the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated, that that was the abomination of desolation. And, and he's standing where he ought not to be. Like, listen, um, I, you know, I'm sure other people thought the same thing when Donald Trump was inaugurated or Biden. But, but it's, it's dangerous to take our political views or our current events and plug them into Jesus' teaching where they don't belong. Um, and so the, 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 the danger that we need to be careful of here is taking first century prophecy that Jesus is talking about and then just kind of transplanting it into 2021. Um, now, the abomination of desolation is also mentioned in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Um, now, I believe that that was fulfilled by a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes who sacrificed a pig in the temple. He went into the temple, he took an unclean animal, a pig, and he sacrificed it to an unknown or a, a false god. Um, in 167 BC. I think the Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled by that man doing that detestable act. Jesus mentions it again after that fact, uh, matter of fact, almost, almost 200 years after that. He mentions it again and says that it's going to happen, um, and he tells his disciples to look for that. I tend to believe he is referring to an act that happened in AD 70, the same uh, attack military attack on Jerusalem where the temple was destroyed. Right before the temple was destroyed, a general of the Roman army named Titus uh, walked into a consecrated place in the temple, a place that no unbeliever was supposed to go. Um, I tend to believe that's probably what Jesus had in mind. Again, I can't say that with any level of certainty, but I tend to think that's what the reference is for. The reason I believe that is because I think, again, Jesus is talking primarily not about the end of the world for us, but the destruction of the temple for them. And so we see the specificity of Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple and then the specificity of the ge geographical location in verse 14. Notice he says, let those in Judea flee. He doesn't say let those in all the world flee. He doesn't say let the Babylonians flee. He doesn't give any kind of other prophetic language. He says those who are in Judea flee. And so verses 15 through 23, I want to just go over briefly, but I think Jesus is showing in those verses some instructions for people who are very much going to be alive and see that battle. He gives them warnings and things that they're supposed to carry out. Um, and I think Jesus is giving 
um, these signs and warnings to that generation who would see that attack on Jerusalem. He says to them, Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, I want you to remember that, that the Lord cuts short those days, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. So I believe that the great tribulation prophecy in Scripture mostly um, and partially refers to the events that happened in the first century. Um, That means that I'm not a full futurist, but I think it is important that we notice verse 20. Um, The hermeneutic that I ascribe to, if you're a scholar nerd, would be the idealist hermeneutic, which is a a belief that the Bible gives us patterns that continue until Jesus comes back. So the pattern of tribulation we see most clearly fulfilled in the first century, but that pattern continues until Jesus comes back. That's why we all, every generation has wars that they have to answer for. Every generation has famine. Every generation has disasters and earthquakes and things like that. And And what I think it's a pattern of is that tribulation that was cut short in the first century. Uh, For the sake of the elect, Jesus says that those days are cut short. It's even very similar language to the prophet Daniel who prophesied about 77s or 70 weeks or 77-year periods of time that ultimately have this kind of weird pause at the end of them and is fulfilled in Jesus' life when when he comes. Um, What we see in all of this is that God is still working in his world, even though there's still tribulation. And so for that reason, uh, the primary implication is the destruction of Jerusalem. A secondary implication from this text is foreshadowing of events that will come in the future in the second coming. Now, on this longer implication, I want to kind of shift from academia to just preaching to your heart. Because if, if we're not careful, again, this will kind of suck us up and get us all anxious and worried about stuff. And it'll cause us to be making charts and getting like a telescope and looking at the stars and stuff and trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back, right? And I don't want you all to get into like all that kookiness because Jesus has very clear words for his disciples when it comes to the end and their eschatology. And he gives three imperatives that that Karen read to you at the beginning of the sermon. He tells them, number one, you can write these down, three points of application. Number one, he tells them, do not be led astray. Do not be led astray. There's going to be things that are going to distract you, uh, to get you to go to the right or the left. He says, do not be led astray. Number two, he tells them, do not be alarmed. Don't be, a, don't be an alarmist. He, he warns them that there's going to be calamity coming after his death, but he says, do not be alarmed. And then number three is to be alert, to be alert, to be vigilant, to to have your eyes open and know what's going on. So let me go through those briefly to kind of conclude the sermon, Um, and I hope this will just be good news for your souls. Um, I went horseback riding one time, and they gave me the crazy horse. (laughs) Y'all ever been there? they They look at a guy like me, and they're like, he can handle it. And they bring this horse out, and there's like fog, and it emerges from the from the barn, you know, and and you know a horse on a horseback riding trail. I'm not a cowboy, and and so like it's supposed to just follow the horse in front of it, you know. It's not supposed to veer off the path, and 
Um, well, I got the horse that wanted to spin in circles for some reason, and I vowed I would never ride a horse again. Um, and, and so it scared me to death, and, and what I found out was it was bleeding, and it, so it, it had like rubbed up on some briars and got cut, and it, it just started like hollering and getting back on its two hind legs, and I looked like Clint Eastwood, and, and um, it was just a wild time. But on those narrow trails that like kind of go around mountains when you're riding a horse, you want them to stay on the narrow trail. And this is the, the picture that the Bible paints of the Christian faith. It's a narrow road. Jesus calls it a narrow path to heaven. And, and he tells his disciples repeatedly in his teachings to not stray to the left or to the right. Matter of fact, um, in Deuteronomy 5.32, the Bible says, Be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Now, in our passage today, look at verse 5 and 6. Mark 13, 5 and 6. Jesus says to his disciples that are, that are concerned about the end, he says, see that no one leads you astray. Isn't it interesting that, that Jesus doesn't just get out a chart? Like he doesn't just unroll a scroll and be like, let me show you how it's all going to go. Okay, take good notes. No, it, it, he speaks to their souls. He says, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Jesus speaks to our hearts in his warnings of eschatology. It's not that we need to look at CNN, but we need to look to our Savior. That, that, that he says many are going to come in the name of Christ and will, if possible, lead astray those who truly belong to Christ. Listen, I, I've, I've seen enough on the internet to know that there are many pastors who claim the name of Jesus, who will lead you further from Jesus rather than closer to Jesus. I've, listen, I've been around the internet enough to know that there are many politicians who claim the name of Jesus who will definitely lead you further away from Jesus than closer to Jesus. Just because people claim the name of Christ does not mean they will help you get closer to Christ. And that's why I tell you, church, stay in your Bibles. Stay close to Christ. Not just close to me, not close to any other person necessarily, although there is grace in those things, but stay close to the Word of God. And so if we're not to be led astray and we're not to turn to one side or the other, what is it that the Lord commands us to do? It's filled with that in the Bible. We're to worship Him deeply. We're to serve in His name. We're to evangelize. We're to make disciples. You know what we're never told to do in the Bible? Not once figure out when Jesus is coming back. We're never commanded to like to do research on the Middle East and land treaties and contracts and stuff and try to figure out when Jesus is coming back. Matter of fact, we'll see next week, Jesus says, I don't even know. He says, the son does not even know when he's returning. We're never told to worry about that. Instead, we're given a clear mission. Look at verse 10. Jesus tells it plainly to the disciples. He says, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. That's your marching orders. That's your mission. Do not be led astray by fears of the end or anxiety of pandemics or wars or rumors of wars or natural disasters, but rather you proclaim the gospel to all people and you make disciples. Plain and simple. When you encounter a, a preacher or a politician or a friend, whoever it may be, and the preaching is more of a response to the news than it is to the Bible, that's when you, that's when you deuce out. I'm done. Because we are guided by the word of God, not by current events. That's it. And missional drift always starts that way. 
When we get off of the path, when we start to be like the wild horse that I rode, we always have a good reason for going off the path, right? Well, Briar's got me. And that translates to critical race theory or vaccinations or masks. We always have a good reason. We feel like it's a noble cause. I've had people ask me, like, well, what's the church's policy on this? Have you written up a stance on this? It's like, no, I've written the, the gospel out that the Bible has given me, and it's an answer to every question in the world. That's it. I'm not going to drift away from that. When, when I was a kid, we always went to Myrtle Beach. Y'all good West Virginians like me? You been to Myrtle Beach? Okay. And, and I would go, my mom let me go out and swim, and I wasn't that scared of the ocean. I'd want to go out as far as I could. It's where I couldn't touch anymore and just swim and let the sharks look at my legs and all that. And, um, and then, you know, I had to come back in for lunch or to check in with mom. And when I would want to swim back in, I, I, I always tried to mark in my mind what my hotel was, right? When you get out in the ocean, all the hotels look the same all of a sudden, don't they? And so, so I knew I needed to swim back in, and so I swim toward the shore. And I tell myself, I'm going in the right direction. I'm not going further into the ocean where there's no buildings. I'm going toward buildings. That's great. Until I get to the shore, and I realize I've got to walk like a mile up the beach to get back to my parents, right? You know what that's called? Drift. I drifted from what I thought, and I thought I was swimming in the right direction, but the distractions and the current had taken me somewhere else. This is what happens to us when we get caught up in these things. We're not being obedient to what Jesus preached to his disciples and thereby preached to you as well. Do not be led astray. I beg you. Secondly, do not be alarmed. Listen, I see lots of alarmists in my life. I see it in counseling sessions. I hear it in conversations with people in our church and outside our church. I see it on Facebook a lot. Amen. Y'all are on Facebook. I see lots of alarmists on Facebook. But here's what I know. Panic is the exact opposite of Jesus' advice to you. Panic is exactly what he calls you to not do. He calls you to rest in his sovereign truth. Verse 7, he tells his disciples that are worried and questioning. He says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. He goes on in verse 8 to speak of earthquakes and famines. And I don't think it would be too far of a stretch to throw pandemics in there as well. But he points to these things and he says, when these things happen, do not be alarmed. He means don't be scared. He says these things must take place, but the end is not yet. Romans 8.22 says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. Jesus uses the same language um, in Mark 13, that the pains of childbirth are, are engulfing all of creation, that, that the world will be pulled apart because of sin and because of the curse until Jesus arrives in his second coming to mend it back together. And that's what we proclaim as a church. We gather to worship him and to await with, with longingness when he comes back to put it all back together. He says in verse 13, you'll be hated for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so you need not be an alarmist, but you need to be a realist. And realize what Jesus says about our lives is not all gravy. It's not easy. Enduring is the word he uses, and it's difficult by nature, isn't it? It doesn't say the one who just remains or the one who stays put. It definitely doesn't say the one who enjoys life to the end will be saved. Rather, it says the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
Like, think of it this way. No one goes on a vacation and, and describes it as enduring it. Like, yeah, I, I was on vacation all last week, and someone's like, yeah, how'd it go? And you're like, I endured it very well. <laughs> Maybe depending on who you went on vacation with. I don't know. But, um, but most people would say, I enjoyed my vacation. But Jesus doesn't call us to enjoy. He calls us to endure. That indicates suffering. That indicates struggling. But it also has the promise of perseverance in it. That I endure not by my own strength. I endure because the spirit that has indwelled me as a Christian is stronger than the flesh that has to fight against these things of life. God's elect will endure. It's a promise from God, not from your ability. That God's elect will endure. We will be held not by our, our strength. We will ultimately be held by God's strength and the fact that Jesus has saved and redeemed us. And so when we see wars in the Middle East or even on our own soils or when we see pandemics like, and we think we get over the, the hump and flatten the curve and all those things and then Delta shows up and when we see all these things and we get discouraged, we're not alarmist. Because Jesus told us this life was going to be hard and it was going to be something we had to endure. Rather, we'll gather together and say, we're enduring together. This sucks. This is hard. But we're going to do this together because we have a promise of eternity that's greater than all this. The third thing Jesus tells his disciples is to be alert. Do you know what's better than being an alarmist? Being alert. Jesus tells his disciples multiple times in chapter 13 to be on guard. The Greek word used is blepo, which means have your eyes open. Just have your eyes open. Verse 9 says, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. You know, this is one of the reasons I don't believe that the rapture is going to happen seven years before Jesus comes back. is because Jesus gives a lot of ominous warnings about his disciples going through a lot of crap. Like this. He'll be given over to councils and beaten up and arrested. He doesn't tell us to escape those things. He tells us to endure those things. And he tells us to be alert, have our eyes open to those things. You see, Jesus has promised us that he is coming and he's coming to resolve all those things. But until that day, we keep our eyes on Jesus. Now, in our peripherals, we see those things, right? In our peripheral vision, we see Afghanistan and we see we see the, the pandemic and we see what's on the news and we see all those things in our peripherals, but our focus needs to be on Christ. Remember what happened when Peter was walking on water? He took his eyes off Jesus. He sank. You remember what happened when the, the, one of the first deacons, Stephen, was being murdered? He looked into heaven and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. He put his eyes on Jesus and it brought him comfort. He wasn't delivered from that murder. He was killed, but he was brought comfort in it. And that's where we find ourselves. I love that old hymn that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And I love this third line of that chorus. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's like we put things in their proper perspective when we keep our eyes on Jesus rather than things that are ultimately temporal. Was the destruction of the temple a big deal? Absolutely, it was. But Jesus tells them to be alert and be on guard. 
and not be discouraged by that. Is the pandemic a big deal? Absolutely it is. Is who gets elected as president a big deal? Absolutely it is. Is what's happening in the Middle East a big deal? Absolutely it is. But as Christians, we leave our eyes on Jesus. We focus on him. And, and even in the Old Testament, all the, the beauty of the, the sacrificial system, all of it was meant to lift their eyes to something higher than what they, what they saw in their newspapers. And in communion today, we're going to invite you to a table. We do this every Sunday because we want to continually and repeatedly lift your eyes to something higher. That in this bread and this juice, you're reminded of Jesus' body and his blood. And while the world is going crazy around you, church, while everything is seemingly out of control, Jesus, through this bread and this juice, the simple, almost elementary symbol that he's placed before you is just reminding you he's got this and so if you walk out of here and all the anxiety comes back we get it we understand but just for a moment today can you rest in the fact that Jesus has won through his death and his resurrection and we celebrate that week after week we remind ourselves of that week after week because he has paid the price to purchase us from our sins And nothing can touch us now. Nothing can affect our eternity anymore because Jesus has secured it by his own blood. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.